Chapter Two of Hushed Up by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Two, Told in the Night. Sylvia Pennington, the face, the name, those wistful, appealing eyes haunted me in my dreams that night. Why? Even now I am at a loss to tell, unless, well unless I had become fascinated by that strange, mysterious, indescribable expression, fascinated perhaps by her marvelous beauty, unequaled in all my experience. Next morning, while my man Lorenzo was waiting for me, I told him to make discreet inquiry regarding the pair when in the steward's room where he ate his meals. Soon after noon he came to me, saying he had discovered that the young woman had been heard by the night porter weeping alone in her room for hours, and that as soon as it was dawn she had gone out for a long walk alone along the lakeside. It was apparent that she and her father were not on the very best of terms. "'The servants believe they are French, sir,' my man added, "'but it seems that they tell people they are English. The man speaks English like an Englishman.' I heard him half an hour ago asking the hall porter about a telegram. "'Well, Lorenzo,' I said, "'just keep your eyes and ears open. I want to learn all I can about Mr. Pennington and his daughter. She hasn't a maid, I suppose.' "'Not with her, sir,' he replied. "'If she had, I'd soon get to know all about them.' I was well aware of that, for Lorenzo Merli, like all Italians, was a great gossip and quite a lady-killer in the servants' room. He was a dark-haired, good-looking young man whose character was excellent, and who had served me most faithfully. His father was farm bailiff to an Italian marquis I knew, and with whom I had stayed near Parma, while before entering my service he had been valet to the young Marchese di Vettavo, one of the beaux of Roman society. When I reposed a confidence in Lorenzo I knew he would never betray it and I knew that, now I had expressed an ardent desire for information regarding the man Pennington and his daughter, he would strain every effort to learn what I wanted to know. The pair sat at their usual table at luncheon. She was in a neat gown of navy blue serge, and wore a pretty cream hat which suited her admirably. Her taste in dress was certainly wonderful for an Englishwoman, yet the pair always spoke French together and presented no single characteristic of the British whatsoever. Because of his epicurean taste the stout, bald-headed man received the greatest attention from the waiters, but those splendid eyes of his daughter betrayed no evidence of either tears or sleeplessness. They were the same, wistful yet wonderful, with just that slightest trace of sadness which had filled me with curiosity. After luncheon he strolled along the broad palm-lined terrace in the sunshine beside the water's edge, while she lolled in one of the long cane chairs. Yet as I watched I saw that she was not enjoying the warm winter sunshine or the magnificent view of snow-capped mountains rising on the far horizon. Presently she rose and walked beside her father, who spoke to her rapidly and earnestly, but she only replied in monosyllables. It seemed that all his efforts to arouse her interest utterly failed. I was lounging upon the low wall of the terrace, pretending to watch the arrival of the little black-and-white paddle steamer on its way to Riva, when as they passed me Pennington halted to light a cigar. Suddenly he glanced up at me with a strangely suspicious look. 
His dark eyes were furtive and searching, as though he had detected and resented my undue interest in his daughter. Therefore I strolled down to the landing stage, and, going on board the steamer, spent the afternoon travelling up to Riva, the pretty little town with a tiny harbour at the Austrian end of the lake. The afternoon was lovely, and the panorama of mountain mirrored in the water, with picturesque villages and hamlets nestling at the water's edge, was inexpressibly grand. The deep azure of the unruffled water stood out in contrast to the dazzling snow above, and as the steamer, hugging the shore, rounded one rocky point after another, the scene was certainly, as the Italian contadino puts it, a bit of paradise fallen from heaven upon earth. But to you who know the North Italian lakes, why need I describe it? Suffice it to say that I took tea in the big hall of the Lido Palace Hotel at Riva, and then boarding the steamer again, returned to Gardone just in time to dress for dinner. I think that Pennington had forbidden his daughter to look at me, for never once during dinner the next evening, as far as I could detect, did she raise her eyes to mine. When not eating she sat, a pretty figure in cream chiffon, with her elbows upon the table, her chin upon her clasped hands, talking to her father in that low confidential tone. Were they talking secrets? Just before they rose I heard him say in English, I'm going out for an hour, just a stroll, I may be longer. If I'm not back all night, don't be anxious, I may be detained. Where are you going? she asked quickly. That is my affair, was his abrupt reply. Her face assumed a strange expression. Then she passed along the room, he following. As soon as they had gone, my mind was made up. I scented mystery. I ascended in the lift to my room, got my coat, and going outside into the ill-lit road beyond the zone of the electric lights in front of the hotel, I waited. The man was not long in coming. He wore a golf cap and a thick overcoat, and carried a stout stick. On the steps of the hotel he paused, lit his cigar, and then set off to the left down the principal street, the high road which led to the clean little town of Salo and the southern end of the lake. I lounged along after him at a respectable distance, all curiosity at the reason why, in that rural retreat, he intended to be absent all night. He went along at a swinging pace, passing around the lake front of the town which almost adjoins Gardone, and then began to ascend the steep hill beyond. Upon the still night air I could scent the aroma of his cigar. He was now on his way out into a wild and rather desolate country high above the lake but after walking about a mile he came to a point where the roads branched, one to Verona, the other to Brescia. There he halted, and seating himself upon a big stone at the wayside, smoked in patience and waited. I advanced as near as I could without risk of detection, and watched. He struck a match in order to look at his watch. Then he rose and listened intently. The night was dark and silent, with heavy clouds hanging about the mountains, threatening rain. I suppose he had waited fully another quarter of an hour, when suddenly, far away over the brow of the hill in the direction of Brescia, I saw a peculiar light in the sky. At first I was puzzled, but as it gradually grew larger and whiter I knew that it came from the headlights of an approaching motor-car. Next moment the hum of the engine fell on my ears, and suddenly the whole roadway became illuminated, 
so suddenly indeed that I had only just time to crouch down in order to avoid detection. Pennington shouted to the driver, and he instantly pulled up. Then two men in thick overcoats descended and welcomed him warmly in English. "'Come along, old man,' I heard one of them cry. "'Come inside. We must be off again, for we haven't a moment to spare. How's the girl?' Then they entered the car, which was quickly turned, and a few moments later disappeared swiftly along the road it had come. I stood full of wonder, watching the white light fade away. Who were Pennington's friends that he should meet them in so secret a manner? How's the girl? Had that man referred to Sylvia? There was mystery somewhere. I felt certain of it. Down the hill I retraced my steps, on through the little town, now wrapped in slumber, and back to the Grand Hotel where nearly everyone had already retired to bed. In a corner of the big lounge, however, Pennington's daughter was seated alone, reading a Tocknitz novel. I felt in no humor to turn in just then, for I was rather used to late hours. Therefore I passed through the lounge and out upon the terrace in order to smoke and think. The clouds were lifting and the moon was struggling through, casting an uncertain light across the broad dark waters. I had thrown myself into a wicker chair near the end of the terrace, and with a cigarette was pondering deeply, when of a sudden I saw a female figure wrapped in a pale blue shawl coming in my direction. I recognized the cream skirt and the shawl. It was Sylvia. Ah, how inexpressibly charming and dainty she looked. When she had passed I rose, and meeting her face to face, raised my hat and spoke to her. She started slightly and halted. What words I uttered I hardly knew, but a few moments later I found myself strolling at her side, chatting merrily in English. Her chiffons exuded the delicate scent of rosé d'orsay, that sweet perfume which is the hallmark of the modern well-dressed woman, and she was undoubtedly English after all. Oh, no, she declared in a low musical voice, in response to a fear I had expressed. I am not at all cold. This place is so charming and so warm to where my father and I have recently been, at Uleborg in Finland. At Uleborg, I echoed. Why, that is a way, out of the world, at the northern end of the Gulf of Bothnia. Yes, she declared with a light laugh, it is so windy and cold, and oh, so wretchedly dull. I should rather think so, I cried. Why, it is almost within the Arctic Circle. Why did you go up there so far north in winter? Ah, she sighed, we are always traveling. My father is the modern wandering Jew, I think. Our movements are always sudden, and our journeys are always long ones from one end of Europe to the other very often. "'You seem tired of it,' I remarked. "'Tired?' she gasped, her voice changing. "'Ah, if you only knew how I long for peace, for rest, for home!' And she sighed. "'Where is your home?' "'Anywhere, nowadays,' was her rather despondent reply. "'We are wanderers. We lived in England once, but alas, that is now all of the past.' My father is compelled to travel, and I must of necessity go with him. I am afraid, she added quickly, that I bore you with this chronicle of my own troubles. I really ought not to say this to you a stranger, she said with a low, nervous little laugh. Though I may be a stranger, yet surely I may become your friend, I remarked, looking into her beautiful face half concealed by the blue wrap. For a moment she hesitated, then halting in the graveled path and looking at me, she replied very seriously. No, please do not speak of that again. 
why not? Well, only because you must not become my friend. You are lonely, I blurted forth. I have watched you and I have seen that you are in sore need of a friend. Do you deny that? No, she faltered. I, I, yes, what you say is, alas, correct. How can I deny it? I have no friend. I am alone. Then allow me to be one. Put to me whatever test you will, I exclaimed, and I hope I may bear it satisfactorily. I, too, am a lonely man, a wanderer. I, too, am in need of a friend in whom I can confide, whose guidance I can ask. Surely there is no friend better for a lonely man than a good woman. Ah, no, she cried, suddenly covering her face with both her hands. You don't know. You are ignorant. Why do you say this? Why? Shall I tell you why? I asked, gallantly bending to her in deep earnestness. Because I have watched you, because I know you are very unhappy. She held her breath. By the faint ray of the distant electric light I saw her face had become changed. She betrayed her emotions and her nervousness by the quick twitching of her fingers and her lips. No, she said at last, very decisively, you must abandon all thought of friendship with me. It is impossible, quite impossible. Would my friendship be so repugnant to you then? I asked quickly. No, no, not that, she cried, laying her trembling fingers upon my coat sleeve. You, you don't understand. You cannot dream of my horrible position, of the imminent peril of yours. Peril? What do you mean? I asked, very much puzzled. You are in grave danger. Be careful of yourself, she said anxiously. You should always carry some weapon with you because... And she broke off short, without concluding her sentence. Because why? Well, because an accident might happen to you, an accident planned by those who are your enemies. I really don't understand you, I said. Do you mean to imply that there is some conspiracy afoot against me? I warn you in all seriousness, she said. I, well, the fact is, I came out here, I followed you out, in order to tell you this in secret. Leave here, I beg of you, leave early tomorrow morning, and do not allow the hotel people to know your new address. Go somewhere, far away, and live in secret under an assumed name. Let Owen Biddup disappear as though the earth had swallowed him up. Then you are aware of my name, I exclaimed. Certainly, she replied, but do, I beg of you, for your own sake, heed my warning. Ah, it is cruel and horrible that I, of all women, have to tell you this. I always carry a revolver, I replied, and I have long ago learned to shoot straight. Be guarded always against a secret and insidious attack, she urged. I must go in now, now that I have told you the truth. And do you, then, refuse to become my friend, Miss Pennington? I asked very earnestly. Surely you are my friend already, because you have told me this. Yes, she answered, adding, Ah, you do not know the real facts. You would not ask this if you were aware of the bitter ghastly truth. You would not ask my friendship. Nay, you would hate and curse me instead. But why? I asked, amazed at her words. You speak in enigmas. She was silent again. Then her nervous fingers once more gripped my arm, as looking into my face, her eyes shining with a weird unusual light, she replied in quick, breathless sentences, "'Because, because friendship between us must never, never be. It would be fatal to you, just as it would be fatal to me. Death, yes, death, would come to me quickly and swiftly, perhaps tonight, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps in a week's time. 
for it I am quite prepared. All is lost, lost to me forever. Only have a care of yourself, I beseech of you. Heed what I say. Escape the cruel fate which your enemies have marked out for you. Escape while there is yet time, and... and... She faltered in a low, hoarse voice full of emotion. Some day in the future, perhaps, you will give a passing thought to the memory of a woman who revealed to you the truth, who saved you from an untimely end, the unhappy woman without a friend. "'But I will be your friend,' I repeated. "'No, that can never be, never!' And she shuddered. "'I dare not risk it. Reflect and escape. Get away in secret and take care that you are not followed. Remember, however, we can never be friends. Such a course would be fatal. Yes, alas, fatal!' Instinctively she put out her tiny white hand in frank farewell. Then, when I had held it for a second in my own, she turned and, drawing her shawl about her, hurried back to the big hotel. Utterly dumbfounded, I stood for a few seconds, dazed and wondering, the sweet odor of rosé d'ossé filling my nostrils. What did she know? Then suddenly I held my breath, for there I saw for the first time standing back in the shadow of the trees, straight before me, motionless as a statue, the tall dark figure of a man who had evidently watched us the whole time, and who had, no doubt, overheard all our conversation. End of chapter 2. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.